0: fashion, Paralympic champion Madison de Rosario made history last weekend, becoming the first Australian woman to win the New York Marathon. She's had a stellar year with two gold medals as well as a bronze in Tokyo at her fourth Paralympic Games. Before she left for the Big Apple and her tilt at the title in New York, Maddie took time out to share her story with us. Here's what she had to say. Maddie de Rosario, hello and how are you?
1: I'm good. It's always a little surreal hearing that kind of an introduction, but no, I'm good. Thanks for having me on.
0: <laughs> well, first up, congratulations on a cracking performance in Tokyo, adding more medals to an already bulging trophy cabinet. How good was it? Oh, it was
1: unreal. It was amazing. I think going in, none of us knew what Tokyo was going to look like. There was there was so many unknowns, but we had so much communication leading in, so much transparency from our team, and it was the most well-run games I have ever been at in my life.
0: But tell me, you train for four years thinking you're going to a Games, and then you're told that you have to wait another year. What's going through your head at that point?
1: That was really challenging. I mean, that was so challenging for everybody, and I think it was just Compounded by what a strange year it was outside of sport for all of us, but specifically when it comes to games, I think it, your life just exists in these four-year cycles, and mine's done that since before I was fourteen. And so to kind of have <laughs> that rolled out was was strange. And I think at the moment Rio wrapped up in, in 2016, everything was Tokyo 2020. And I think as athletes, we, I mean, we try and not let sport be our entire identity, and no matter how good <laughs> doing of that when something like that happens where not only were the games postponed there was still this uncertainty of where they would go ahead at all and so you kind of like your whole identity is is just this like chaotic spin that you weren't expecting so emotionally it was it was uh, a really strange place to be in but physically the, the the physical work I was able to do to go back just base work without it being interrupted you know by racing was unreal and and yeah, to, to bring all of that together, I think that that marathon win in Tokyo was 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 a credit to to my team really capitalising on that twelve month delay.
0: Well, I'm going to talk about that marathon effort in a minute, but Maddie, you've won Paralympic medals before. How special is it to turn silver into gold? Oh,
1: more than you would, more than I was ready to. I think <laughs> process. I I think you work worked for it for so long, and that that's the big one, right? Like everything else you know, is, is amazing. And you, you, you know, it's part of the process and you'd love all of those moments, but there was kind of just, for me, it was just this elusive thing that I hadn't been able to do. I'd, I'd won world titles. I'd broken world records, but I'd never won that preemptive gold medal. And, and for me, that was so much more amazing to finally do that because my, my coach, Louise Savage, as a coach, had never coached an athlete to a preemptive gold medal either. Had <laughs> that experience, And she wanted that for me, but she wanted it for herself as a coach. So to finally do that, my fourth games, and Lou and I have worked together that entire time was an amazing moment.
0: Extraordinary. And and I want to ask you about that second goal, the marathon effort, literally in the marathon. With a kilometer to go, you're leading the pack. What's going on in your head at that point?
1: Oh my panic. Just death, like just sheer panic (laughs) because because I worried that I'd kicked too early. I worried that I'd made this decision and I'd back myself. I was so confident when I started that kick. I was like, (laughs) it was about 2K to go. I started it. And it was when we kind of came over that last hill. I'd made a bit of a gap on the hill. And I had a bit of a lead and I was like, you've done over 40K. It's just too, it's nothing. 2K is nothing. You got this. (laughs) 2K at the tail end of a marathon is like the longest two kilometers you will (laughs) ever do, right? So but halfway through that, I remember just thinking that I may have made a huge mistake. Like, can I hold this? So it was panic, but it was also just kind of reverting back to just trusting your body. I think sometimes you just have to hand all control over to your body and just let it do what it knows how to do. And that last... Yeah, kilometer of that marathon was definitely that.
0: <laughs> well, to the uninitiated, the hard part looks like it would be pushing the uphill portion, but the descent is really just as important. Why is that, and why is it difficult?
1: So, in in wheelchair racing, uh, we're very impacted by the hills. So we don't have gears or anything like a cyclist does, and that uphill with momentum impacts us more than would impact a runner, for example. And depending on on your skill set, your chair setup. Um, so many factors. Whether you're good up or down, and and for me, I'm I'm good up a hill. I am terrible down a hill. I'm I'm one of the slowest <laughs> in in our entire international field, and I'm, I'm very conscious of that. And and this particular race was a big challenge in that regard because in that last. You know three kilometers you have one big uphill it's a slow climb and then a kick at the end of it followed by the downhill but because it finished in the stadium which is a sunken stadium there's a second downhill before you hit the track so it's one uphill which is my strength to two downhills which are absolutely <laughs> not so I knew that I had to get not just the top of that hill first but to get to the top with enough of a gap that I could kind of withhold like you know withstand two downhills after that so just though so, like that it was a close finish I only really just managed to create enough of a gap but yeah
0: a close finish it was an unbelievable finish to that race and what a way to close out not just a race but the games you will of course have had a chance now to watch it back and a number of times I imagine how vivid is the memory of how you came down the final straight
1: Oh, my God. It brings, like, so much back. And and when you're kind of in it, everything's just such a bone. You forget so much. The minute it's done, I feel like half of the race is just wiped because it was all adrenaline and it kind of just it disappears in that moment when you finish and it's just that kind of you know that that relief but that joy and that pride that all kind of comes flooding in and then to re-watch it it almost like triggers it to just come back and you remember you know the the panic and the trust that you had in yourself and then all the thoughts that you had so it really it's like reliving it all over again every time I see it
0: that's very cool. And I know that you would have had a pretty clear race plan. Your coach, as you mentioned, Louise Savard, she knows a thing or two about planning races. How did you prepare for this one? And particularly mentally, what's the process? Is it the uh, the rivals or is it the course or is it everything?
1: All of it. Definitely the course when it comes to a marathon. So I think that the very tactical side of wheelchair racing really shows on the track when there is not much time to make each of those decisions. Whereas once you get to the road over 42 kilometers, that fitness just kind of wins out, right? So it's, you need to be so physically prepared to even kind of be a contender in that, those last five kilometers where it really matters. And so I think we had a lot of faith in the prep that we had done in the five years leading up but particularly in those last 18 months and we knew that we'd put me physically in a really good position to be able to do 42 kilometers really strong we could not speak to anyone else though because we'd all had the the advantage i guess of that base work with no racing so who really capitalized on that definitely showed over that course and we weren't gonna know until we got out there on the road so it was a lot of just trust in, in myself and my body to do it but not just to to run a good race i i wanted to to run a really strong race and In wheelchair racing, you can choose to do a lot of work or not a lot of work depending on where in the pack you're sitting. So much like cycling, if you're up front, you're kind of, you're carrying the wind and it's a a harder race from the front. Whereas the further you get back, the easier it is in that kind of, those draft positions. And so Lou and I beforehand, we had the conversation that I wanted to run a race that I could be really proud of. And that meant spending a lot of time out the front, doing a lot of that work. and, And if it was enough, it was going to be enough. And if I'm going to win races, I want to win them as a strong athlete who I can be proud of and- and that was the the main thought in that race was do all those things and just see how it comes together at the end. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm so happy that that it was able to, and I, I'm so happy now that, you know, what a month and a half has has gone by, but, <laughs> but it was a race that I'm really proud of. And I get to kind of keep that, like that's something that, yeah, I'm really proud of that one.
0: Uh, with good reason too. Best memory ever. What did Lou say to you after that race?
1: I think we were both just crying after that race. There wasn't a lot of, of words. I think that was something that we'd put so much into. I think we poured so much of ourselves into that. And and you think of the sacrifices that you make as an athlete. And then I see the sacrifice that Lou makes as a coach. And, and it's, it's just as much. She's just as invested as I am. And I know it frustrates her having to watch it from the side, not better do it for <laughs> me when I'm out there. I, I know that gets her. So it was, it was just five years of work coming down to that one moment and also five years of, of pressure that had solely been building for myself, and my entire team just suddenly lifted. So it was it was an amazing moment. And I'm so glad she, she was there as soon as I got out of a mix zone. She was right there when I um, finished that race. So, yeah, that was amazing.
0: Uh, it would have been your family of course couldn't be in Tokyo how quickly were you able to speak to them pretty
1: fast I um when you I, I was actually using um waiting for medal ceremonies to FaceTime back home because one <laughs> there was great wi-fi under the stadium and two it was kind of the first moment we got to just stop for a sec and my the the first race where, where I, I ended up on the podium was 800 and Louise hadn't worked out how to get to the the mixed zone and those kind of parts of the stadium yet so I was just there by myself and there were other Australians. And so I, I called home then and realised it was actually a pretty good timing to, to do that. So, yeah, <laughs> I managed to chat to my family before, before medals each time.
0: Now, they would be proud of you regardless of, of where you finish in a race. And I imagine their reaction to a dual gold medal performance was pretty outstanding. But uh, tell me about your little sister because I think she never minded having a little bit of fun at your expense when your best performances were not at the Paralympic Games.
1: <laughs> no. I feel like it's been her secret joy that I've managed <laughs> i managed to get great results at a World Champs and, and everything else, but never at a Paralympics. And and it's good. It's it's humbling for sure. But um I know that she had all of these um basically like um memes, I guess, ready to go to post on her social media accounts <laughs> if I didn't win that gold medal. Um and one of them is like this little cartoon of a of a little man in a dunce cap with like a number two on it that just says good but not the best. And and anytime i've won a silver medal it is the first thing she has sent to me um so that is my little sister um but no she you know what she she gives me such a hard time but her her partner actually sent me a video of her crying um while the national anthem played and i received my first medal so she's beautiful she doesn't share that part with me but thankfully her partner like keeps me in the loop on that
0: you're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. Today's Trailblazer is dual Paralympic gold medalist Madison de Rosario. Maddie, tell us, you've experienced Paralympic Games where you've won a medal, you've experienced Paralympic Games where you haven't won a medal. What's the feeling when you reflect on what was a perfect Paralympics?
1: It's interesting because. I- I, feel I I achieved way more than I thought I, I would at these games, and I could not be happy with it. But I think as athletes, we're so critical of everything that we do. And I look back at those races, the ones that the two where, where I did finish on top of the podium, and the two where I didn't. And you kind of pull out all the mistakes that you think you made. And and Lou and I haven't done our review yet. Like we've been putting it off. We both know that it's something that we have to do. Where you'll go through, and you will learn from all those things. And and the things that you absolutely nailed, like you learn from them as well. We incorporate them going forward so I'm so proud of everything that myself and my team did in Tokyo like it was you're right like the most perfect games like I, I ever could have hoped for and it's but you're, you're it's almost like you're constantly just ready for the next thing and I think kind of like when we wrapped up in Tokyo was the first thing and and I was up I was somewhat disappointed with some of my rear results and I think I put it down to that why I was looking forward to Tokyo immediately but Tokyo's wrapped up and we're already planning Paris my my 2022 year plan is already done and Lou's waiting to share it with me like you you kind of immediately move on and see what's next. So, I mean, I'm, I'm so proud. I'm so happy, but I'm also so excited about what's next.
0: <laughs> well, as we're speaking, Sydney is returning to some sort of version of normal. Hotel quarantine will be a thing of the past for international arrivals. But you were in the pilot program for the home quarantine when you returned from Tokyo. What's that process look like? You just don't walk off a plane and walk into your house and have freedom of movement, do you? How's it work?
1: So what happens is you're kind of, you're met at the airport with the same processes everyone going to to quarantine you you get tested at the airport and if you've been uh, deemed eligible for home quarantine you're basically put on separate transport and they will transport you to where you're going I at the time I actually, I actually had my car at the airport because I wasn't 100% sure how it was all going to work out and you know what that would look like and we had some gear to get to the airport in the first place mm. so I was escorted to my car basically and you know told you know not to stop for any reason and, and before you leave the airport sorry you download the the app that they use to to check in on you so they check that you have that that that's all working well and how long it will take you to get home they know your address and stuff so they know how long it will take you to get home and i think about maybe within 10 minutes of you know walking in my front door i get like an alert from the app that is basically just tells you it's time to check in and you have a minute to take a photo of yourself and it will face id you and geolocate you to like your apartment or wherever you set as your quarantine spot and just it kind of sends all the information through and if you if you miss the minute window you have you'll get like a text alert to let you know (laughs) <laughs> um, and if whatever reason you do miss it, you kind of get, you have to provide like an explanation. And when you provide the explanation, it locates where you were when you provided it as well. So, and if need be, they can follow up on that. And so it's anywhere from once to four times a day and you don't know when they're coming through. And then it's just the same COVID testing that, that you would do in the hotel quarantines on the same days. Um, so yeah, so simple, so straightforward. And when that rolls out, you know, I think there's other states like trialing it now as well. Like that's going to be amazing. How many uh, check-ins did you miss? Oh my God, I missed one. I missed one of them. <laughs> <laughs> like, do they really embarrass like i was sleeping like through this at like 2 p.m. or something like it was terrible but um yeah thankful just the one uh,
0: this was your fourth paralympic games did you approach it differently to the others or is there just a change in the way you approach elite competition as you get more experience
1: it's definitely both one of the things that louise and i have kind of put at the top of our list and i we, we talk about this all the time we discussed it this morning at training is is how do you approach races so many people all vying for the exact same finishing spot and be dominant and not let you want to you want to control that race. You don't want to just go with it and and hope that you can you know make that race work in your favor. Whereas if you can dictate how that race runs, you have a better chance of of having it go your way. And that's something that we're trying to implement into everything that we do right now. And and the 800 is a race that we we put a lot of work into early on, and and that's definitely how I race that race now. Like I will go into I will line up for that race, knowing exactly what I'm going to do and how that's going to look if I if I do that well. Doing it as the distance gets longer, it's harder to be the only one in control because like they're amazing women that I'm racing. They're unreal. They're so strong. They're so fit. They're so Sharp, like they, you know, there is. You're just surrounded by. You're surrounded by the best in the world, right? And so, trying to be dominant in those spaces is an intimidating, intimidating goal. But it's that's kind of what we're working towards right now. And I try and give myself the illusion that I have it, and that helps me go into those races and 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 back my decisions as I make them. And that's, you know, it's, it's very much a work in progress right now. But I think that's what set Tokyo apart from other games that I've done. Is I went into it wanting to control the races that I was in, and I didn't do it. Every Every single time again, like I'm racing just the most unreal women and it doesn't always go to plan, but that was the mindset that I had and that definitely separated it from from any other games that I've raced at.
0: And Lou helps you with so much of that. Did you also work with a mental coach or a psychologist?
1: I work with um, a psychologist at Swiss and I was also seeing a psychologist that was in the village with us in Tokyo quite a bit. And when I'm in my daily training environment, I will see my sports psych regularly, but I'll also get Louise in the room as well for a lot of those meetings. And you kind of you just want to be on the same page about everything, you know, the entire process through. And and we talk about race plans and, and everything. And and my psych is amazing. Like, wheelchair racing, like, isn't a sport that she's super familiar with, but just able to kind of moderate those conversations and help Lou and I kind of work out exactly what we want to do. And it's about the racing, but it's also about like how I'm approaching race. I get really anxious before before I race in, in the month leading into games and you know i haven't always been super honest about that with people around me and and even louise and so having those conversations meant that i was able to get the support from lou and my team leading into games like she was so aware of the process and it's so bizarre in hindsight that i didn't think to tell her before because she's also experienced this right like she's so familiar with what that is like and so Telling her was, it turns out, the easiest thing in the world. And, you know, she was the most supportive person getting me to games and then being everything I needed once we are in the village as well. So absolutely amazing. But, yes, we work with a, definitely with a psych to, to make those decisions.
0: Uh, is it interesting for you that you're an elite athlete, you know how to win a race, you know what mindset you need to win a race without anyone telling you, but how does a psychologist help you see things you can't see for yourself and help you actually activate those ideas?
1: It's almost like, actually, this is an exact conversation I had in the village with, with the with the psych that was there with us, where she's kind of like, she just guides you to verbalize what she knows you already know. Because I think the acknowledgement there with athletes is that, yes, you do know how to do it, but how do you like hone in on that? How do you go into an event knowing that's what you have to do I feel like some of us just do it because we we know but we don't really know what we're doing we wouldn't specifically say it's this we kind of just know we can do it and so we blindly go in and do it and that works really well sometimes it's just not the most consistent method so a lot of the work that I do with with my psych um, is about just kind of clarifying what I already know so when you're having those moments where everything is overwhelming. You can focus on exactly what you have to do, which is what we do physically with training. And now we're trying to do it with, with the mental side as well. Exactly the process we need to go through to, to achieve the goals we've set.
0: So can you pinpoint why everything clicked for this one? Say, say on the day you're racing your marathon, what was it that went absolutely right? Do you have any superstitions? Do you wear, like do you put on lucky knickers or anything like that? I
1: listen to the same song on loop for the entire duration of games. And I get so conscious that I want to keep my volume low enough that no one can hear me just listening to the same sad song for like two weeks straight. Um, That was probably my only routine. I I prepared the exact same way for a track event. So I will I'm painfully early to the track. Like I made my whole team get there before an evening race before the track was even open. Like we weren't allowed on the track, we're just sitting in the tents beside. But part of my process is being there early for that. Um, but I, I warm up the same way, I practice the same way. And so that's probably my, my biggest routine. But yeah, I was in the same song on loop. But throughout that marathon, I think everything did come together. I think there was the physical side, definitely like I felt strong and fit and comfortable in what I was doing. But I also trusted myself and I trusted myself because I, I knew the work that had gone into putting myself there. Once again, huge credit of that to the people around me and and my team. But I, I knew how much had gone into that. And, and I think just trusting yourself in that space, I think you're you're demanding so much of, of your body, but of your mind. It's an enormous task. And I I don't just mean that the marathon, like that definitely seems the hardest. But every single one of those events is is so incredibly stressful and a huge demand on your body and your mind. And I think trusting that they're able to to do that is is huge and I think that was that was one of the big things that really clicked for
0: me these games and what was the song that's on loop
1: oh my god so this is called Station. It's by Lab I never heard it before. It came like on my shuffle, and it's just I feel like I listen to all these really sad songs before I race. One really sad song for race. Every games, every worlds, com games, it's a different one. And I find like when I line up, I want to just do a really calm, right? Like still is the word that like that. That's what I want to feel. And so I just listen to like the National was a band that I was listening to once. Just like the saddest <laughs> of the sad songs. It doesn't. Yeah, that's that's probably my one superstition. <laughs> ha ha
0: ha (laughs) <laughs> well, one, th- one thing you couldn't plan for was collecting a financial reward for your efforts. Were you aware of what was going on? I think Chloe Dalton is a mate of yours, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah, Chloe is. Yeah, so that was, we kind of heard about that as it came out. We didn't know that was happening beforehand. We would have heard about that the same same time and pace paces as, as everybody else. And yeah, I think the whole thing, like learning, learning that the Olympians um, from AFC received, you know, financial support for medals and and the reality is, and Paralympics Italy doesn't have access to the sort of financial means to be able to to give that to their athletes and and we understand that and I think when you look at it from the surface yes you see Olympians getting this amount of money and the Paralympians not and I get that that's not great but that's the the surface result of like a much deeper problem like there is a reason that the Olympics is able to pay Olympians and the Paralympics isn't able to pay Paralympians so it's just one part of of a much deeper really really significant problem that we have globally when it comes to disability so seeing all that kind of play out and get really real results was unreal and and I remember seeing that and there were conversations in the village but I think we all knew that none of us were in a position to you know fight for for ourselves or or, or or any of that there was so much going on and so I think to to see Chloe kind of take charge on that was was unreal and and a conversation that Chloe and I have had before was around how the women in sport movement has the capacity to just bring with it every other minority in sport and and, you know, it's something that I would love to, to see change. And, and I think that, you know, the, the language that I use to talk about disability and, and in that space, I've drawn from the feminist movement because the, the issues are the same. Is this discomfort that we have with anything out of what we've deemed the ordinary. Women, disability, we all fall into those categories. And so, you know, the women in sport movement is huge right now. That's probably, you know, making the most waves. And with that movement comes power. And, and to bring other groups with it is the best use I can think of. That power and that's exactly what chloe did chloe has used a sporting platform to amplify the voices of women in sport and then she used that platform to kind of go in and, and bat for us and we weren't able to do it because we were in the village doing that and so that was unreal so you kind of see that in real time and then really clear results at the end of it where the federal government you know agreed to to, to pay our paralympians was was unreal so chloe's amazing and everything that happened it was happened so fast but yeah no that that's uh, unreal
0: you're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brans. Our trailblazer today is champion athlete Maddie De Rosario. Maddie, tell us about your path to stardom in sport. You're a sporty kid from the minute you know you were born, practically, weren't you? Sporty family, but would you say that the the road to para sports started with the flu at the age of four? Is that correct?
1: Not even, actually. So I, even after acquiring my disability as, as when I was four, I didn't come anywhere near parasport for years, not until I was about 12. I, I would just play whatever sport my sisters were playing. We're, we're so close in age. One's 18 months older, one's 18 months younger. And I would just, whatever they were doing is, is what I was doing. And unfortunately, they both loved soccer, which is the worst sport I could possibly think of now play <laughs> to try and play as a a disability but there I was um and it was I, I would I just love spending time with with them and, and being active and doing all of that and when I was about 12 I started exploring the wheelchair sports options and I I tried everything I tried tennis I tried basketball basketball was the big prominent program in in WA where I grew up and I was terrible I was so bad at it I can't catch a throwball ball to save my life. Um, oh, good I choice remember, of sport then. <laughs> I know. I remember the, so the coach pulled me aside and a man named, named Frank Fonter, who was Louise's first coach when she was in WA, um, and basically he told me that I was terrible and this probably wasn't the sport for me, um, but he had a track chair in the storage room and asked if I wanted to try it. So I tried out this race chair in, in the parking lot of, of this basketball stadium and absolutely fell in love with it.
0: Wow, your parents too—they were pretty amazing, weren't they? They had a, an inspiring approach to you. They didn't cut you any slack, did they? It was just you were—you were just Maddie.
1: Yeah, and this is—I think about it now, and being, you know, young parents and with with three kids, and one of them acquires a disability. How do you know how to navigate that? That's not something that you prepare anybody for, and and disability is just surrounded by negative stigma, and everyone is you know, we've all seen that and we all internalize these beliefs of disability. And the fact that my parents were able to recognize that that is all it was. So I was I was raised, my sisters and I were raised with, with disability being a purely neutral thing in regards to myself, but in regards to anyone around me. And, and my, my grandparents on my mom's side um, are both deaf. So my mom has been in that world and that community as well for her whole life. And and while you know those experiences are, are different, not all disabilities the same, she definitely drew from from that, which I think had a big impact on, on how she then chose to, to navigate that. End. And and I, I definitely credit a lot of who I am now to to, to sport and, and to my family. They're the two enormous ones. I think I was definitely raised um, in, in a I was lucky to be raised by my parents whereas they worked very hard to make sure that they were able to to, to raise my, myself my sisters like that. So, yes, um, yeah, very lucky.
0: Well, you didn't just take to wheelchair racing. It's now been, what, some 13 years of elite competition, that first Paralympic experience. You were so young. What's that like at that age? It was a big uh, shock to the system. That is, <laughs> um,
1: I... I when I when I started training with Louise, I was um it was like early two thousand and eight and I just turned fourteen. And she she saw potential in me and we started working together. With the kind of goal being like London 2012, when I would have been 18 at that point. And that seemed like a very realistic, you know, goal to be setting. And a, a spot opened up on the relay team. And so I I was a very last minute call up and our four by 100 meter team going to Beijing. And and yeah, I I definitely only made Beijing based on you know relay selections but we were the, one of the last group of athletes announced so selection kind of happens in waves and i think it was like maybe like a month or something out of out of beijing that we got the call that we were definitely going so very last minute very um yeah um rushed but amazing and and surreal it's, it's the beijing was the only opening ceremony that i've been to and i'm so glad that i did to kind of get to have that experience to walk into the bird's nest where you know you're going to be racing later on you know that week is unreal and to get to do it you know just surrounded by you know 400 teammates is is yeah it's an experience that it's definitely stuck with me.
0: And so your first Paralympic Games you win a silver medal were you aware of how hard it is to win a medal or was that just the easiest entree into Paralympic (coughs) stardom?
1: (laughs) Also, oh, this is the thing. I definitely started high, and then I, you know, London was not able to back up that result. And that's when it really hit me how, like, how much would have had to fall into place to to do that. And we weren't expected to medal in in Beijing. That is for sure. We didn't expect you as the Australian team, and no one there did either. We, we definitely, um there definitely wasn't any pressure on that team um, to end <laughs> up on the podium. That is for sure. um But I, I think we were just two of us were really young. I was fourteen, and Jemima was sixteen, and I think we were just a team who we really did want it. We were enthusiastic and, and wanted it. And we put together a good team. We were cohesive. We worked so hard on and you had two members in Jemima and I where that was our biggest priority. So half your team wasn't there for individual events. It was just for the relay. And so, you know, that was our out, that was our big event. And so I think that definitely helped in, in that regard. And then yeah, it definitely set me up well. And then um, yeah, different, different story four years later, unfortunately. <laughs>
0: Well, London was, but a fourth place finish in the 800 metres, that's a tough one because it's an excellent performance and out of reach for so many of us, but you've got that feeling of just missing the podium. How do you come to terms with it?
1: I didn't for years, for a really long time. That that one really hit me. Um, I knew going in that the 800 was my my best shot at at a medal at those games, and I thought I was in a position where I was able to do it. Um, I started leaning towards longer distances, kind of leading into London and. And that was the event that I thought if I ran the perfect race, I could end up on the podium. And I just didn't, I I did not run the perfect race. And, and you're right. Finishing fourth is one of the toughest ones to to make peace with. And I remember having to, I had the 400 after that race and I remember lining up for it, just not knowing what I was doing there. I think I, I, I didn't believe that I could, you know, make a podium in the 400 and and that's kind of what we all dream of and that's what you you know you're there to do and I think I had no belief that I was able to do it and I nearly gave the sport up after London I I definitely quit sprinting I raced my first marathon seven months later um wow <laughs> um, but there was yeah I I nearly gave the sport away and it took about two years to really kind of come back from that and fall back in love with it again and yeah London was definitely a bit of a a, a tough kind of period of time
0: well, what about Rio, though? You came in as reigning world champ, and I, I don't want to take any of your sister's lines in in rubbing this in. But what what is it about a Paralympic gold? Is that the pinnacle world champ? You can't get better than that. But is that what athletes crave more than world champs, more than anything? That gold medal. One
1: hundred percent, it is one hundred percent. that was so. I, we went into Rio, and and yeah, we ten months prior, I I won my first world title in the 800 with the exact same field that was going to be there in Rio. And I hadn't won it by much. It was, it was such a close finish. I I, I ran at the time, like the race of my life to, to do it. And it was by no means like a secure spot. Um, the woman um, that won the 800 in Rio, that was her third consecutive Olympic gold medal in that event. And she was, she, she won that race in a world record time. And that's, I think, the only way to make peace with the silver medal when you when you know you're capable of, of winning is if someone breaks a world record to beat you there. Like that's you, you have to be okay <laughs> with that, right? Um so that was that was tough because with my first individual Paralympic medal, it was it was a silver in a in a race where the world record was broken. But 10 months prior I right had crossed that finish line first at a world championship. So it was that one was a hard one to I think really process and comes terms, at the end of the day, though, I was so happy to finally set out an individual Paralympic medalist, and that was that was yeah, unreal, just a complicated one.
0: You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brans, legendary athlete Maddie De Rosario is our trailblazer today. Maddie, when you started working with Louise Sauvage, were you already aware of her legendary status?
1: Lou was the only person growing up who I ever saw that looked like me. My parents watched her in in, in Sydney and I would have been six when the Sydney games run, I think. So I had the luxury of, of growing up as a girl with a disability with someone to look up to my entire life. I, there was someone that looked like me in the spotlight who was a household name growing up. I definitely recognised that was not something that was possible before the Sydney 2000 Games and and Louise was the one that really kind of cemented pro place in Australia and I never expected to end up in the exact same career doing the exact same events that was that was never a goal and I remember the first time I met her was like a, a, a junior nationals I think when I was 12 in, in Sydney I remember meeting her at in Narraveen, getting that dorky photo that you get with with someone that you looked up to for years but yeah no definitely knew who she was and to to kind of now like looking back at that and to kind of be the team that we are together and to to done everything we've done is yeah it's a kind of funny way to end that story
0: Tell me you've got a bit of a rivalry going because you've won that GIO Ausday 10K seven times I think now. Uh, Lou's won at 10. Tell me you're trying to chase down her record.
1: I know there is this small part of me that is and we don't I don't normally think about it because like you know you think like Louise's success and my success are two completely different things and that's like the rational thing you tell yourself and then there's that little competitive part of my brain that's like you could you could do 10 you could do five you got this so there is a small part of me that's like this is yeah you got this but the thing is if and when that happens like Louise's gonna be like the biggest supporter of it happening so it's it's a good goal to set
0: Now, you said that she's going to tell you what's on the slate for next year. Initially, was the plan to head straight back overseas after Tokyo?
1: Yes, it was. We were meant to do Berlin, London, then Chicago Marathon on consecutive weekends. The whole marathon program got reshuffled with everything. Everything got pushed back from from throughout the year to everything after September. So we were planning on heading back overseas, but we um, we couldn't get flights home from any of them, and so kind of one by one, we had to drop them. So that was that wasn't how we planned on on it going. Having said that, I definitely kind of enjoyed the the time at home to kind of just decompress, the kind of easier training with no pressure which you know i haven't done in, in five years that was actually really nice but next year is set to be massive we were meant to have a world championships this year they were meant to be i think in july basically right when when paralympics was and so that's been pushed so next year we now have the Com games which are already meant for for 2022 plus the world championships three weeks later plus the marathon circuit so we're definitely planning for yeah an enormous year next year
0: of course, you're heading towards Paris, which would be your fifth Paralympics. What does success look like for you? Because you've done everything.
1: It's definitely, it's kind of funny ask. I was only thinking about this a few days ago, what that looks like now. I think what I see my role as, I think I do sport very selfishly. Like I definitely race because I want to race and I want those results. And, and there is a small part of me though, that now that I, I, I have, you know, done that that big thing that I had been working for my whole career since I was 14. There is so much that I think individuals can give to this team. This Paralympic team is is my family and they they are the most amazing humans that I'm so lucky to get to to share that, you know, the biggest possible stage with. And I've seen the people who have been so influential in how that team is structured. And I think about the people who had the biggest impact on, on me. And I, you know, Danny Toro was our captain in, in Rio and again in Tokyo. And she was like my rock through these games. I think she was the person that good result, bad result, I would, I would find and seek out. And, and she made sure that she was kind of always there at every single moment I was leaving to race. And she would just happened to be like outside and part of it was coincidence. And I know part of it is that's just who she is. She, she knew when we were racing and she you know knew the impact that she could have on, on, on athletes. And I remember she was one of the first people I saw coming back from, from the marathon back into the village. And, and I didn't think about it leading in but she was exactly the person that I wanted to see coming back and, and she was there. And, and she's the most amazing selfless human I've met in my life. And I think about the impact that she has on this team. And that takes individuals and, and I, I would love to be someone who whether I'm able to have the impact that Danny has that you know I, I, I don't know but, but I want that. I, I want you know I recognize who's shaped my career and why I am the person that I am. and that was individuals and I would love to, to get to be that person for our team as it continues to grow. So yes, I still you know want everything I want as an athlete in Paris, um, but
0: I, I also you know want to see where this team goes. Well, you work so hard, Maddie, to use your platform to advocate for, for people with disabilities. What is the biggest stumbling block to that in your eyes?
1: We don't see disability as a neutral. We don't see people in their entirety and, and all their capacity. And, and I think we we want to reduce someone's identity just to disability the, the minute that we see them. And we do this for every single minority group and you know, women being the largest minority group there is, like we all know that experience and and what that feels like, you know, very much. And, and it's the same. And I think sport is so impactful because it reaches us everywhere, whether we're participating as athletes, as, as staff in in administration roles or just as as spectators, like it it impacts all of us so strongly. And so I think that is the, the best possible platform that I could use but also it's it's so much more important than, than just that and i don't want kids with disabilities growing up seeing and the paralympics being the only thing that they're seeing of people that look like them because that's not pathways that is just one option and that's not that's not a standard that we hold literally any able-bodied person to and so the reality is that the biggest issue that we have is employment right we're not there i could use my sporting platform and speak to millions of australians and say you know, this is, you know, see people in their facets and I could say all the right things and it will not have the same impact as, as a person going and working nine-to-five next to a person with a disability. That is where the impact really lies. And, and that's that is the biggest thing in the way of that kind of genuine, authentic inclusion of every member of our society.
0: Is it in the language as well? You're an athlete, full stop. 100%.
1: And I think language is, is so important and it shapes how we view, you know, nearly everything. And, and like, I remember seeing a a headline after I think maybe Commonwealth Games marathon and it was something like um, wheelchair para marathon T54 or something. Like it was just four different ways of saying that, Hey, the people who do this marathon are also in wheelchairs. Like it was, it's, it's such a, it's at the forefront of everything that we do and say and and we incorporate it in ways that doesn't need to. And, and as women as well, we do this as well. Like, we think about, you know, what's one of the key markers that will know that we have achieved some kind of equality in, in women's sport, and it's when we stop calling it women's sport. And it's the exact same thing for Paralympic sport, which we tend to call like parasport. Like, you know, I, I think about who I can, like, who I identify as being as, as an athlete, and then everything I read is para-athlete, which is fine but that language is required when we're comparing something to something else and so language is enormous and it's one of the things that we can all change the, the way we speak and, and kind of be more thoughtful with with our words and language so that that's a huge one
0: uh, you happen to mention the Com games marathon there now you had a taste of victory on home soil on the gold coast a couple of years ago do you think you could keep the hunger to repeat the feat at brisbane in 2032
1: you know what? Yes, I think I could. I could. When, when, um, not even when Brisbane was announced or confirmed. When, like, I first heard whispers that 2032 might be a home games. I remember doing the math and thinking that I'll be I'll be 38, which is a reasonable retirement age for my sport. Not necessarily on the track, but for the road, I could there's a small part of it's like I can retire at a home games and selfishly (laughs) I also want to experience that I've spoken to to Lou and so many others at what Sydney was like and and it sounds like it's just eclipsed every other moment in their career so you know I think results aside that late in my career I think just to experience that would be I think I kicked myself if I missed it
0: would you ever like to see the paralympics and the olympics combined
1: it's a tricky short answer is no the reasons for that being it's two enormous events like the logistics of that aren't possible if we think about why the commonwealth games looks like it works it's because it's a limited program for for para sport in that space so you know on the gold coast and same as as in birmingham we're going to have a 1500 and a marathon and your silver medalist from that 1500 on the gold coast is Angie Ballard. She's the former world record holder in the 400 and the 800 meter. She's she's a world champion of a 200, 400 meters, and and we don't get to, to see that, you know, in, in if we're just kind of giving very select events. And and I I love what the Commonwealth Games does. It increases profile you know by, by using a really established you know sport to, to do that which is amazing but what I would love to see is that all the eyes that are on the Olympics also be on the Paralympics and I think that that's what we saw happen this time around and admittedly the country half the country was in lockdown so a bit of a captive audience in that regard but eyes on screens for the Paralympics was unreal And that's what's going to make such a huge difference is, I think we can, you can keep the Olympics and the Paralympics, you know, two weeks apart, but if we can kind of maintain the enthusiasm of the Olympics through to the Paralympics, that's, that's what's going to make all the difference in the world, not just to, to the, you know, athletes or people with disabilities, but, but for for Australians to see that as well, like that, that's huge. And, and yeah, I think that, that's, that's all it needs is just, yeah, more, more eyes on the Paralympics.
0: That was Maddie de Rosario before she headed off to America, where she became the first Aussie woman to win the New York Marathon. You can catch that chat again and all our Trailblazers interviews on the podcast. Just search Trailblazers with Stephanie Brantz. Join us again next week when we delve into the world of netball coaching with the legendary Julie Fitzgerald AM. Till then, have a great week and we'll see you at 8pm on Tuesday.